When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. Today we're looking at Russia, where a lot's happening, both domestically and internationally. Tensions are once again mounting in eastern Ukraine, with fears that a new Russian offensive may be in the offing. Russia's still on the offensive in Syria. And back in Moscow, President Putin has just replaced his long-standing chief of staff, Sergei Ivanov. So is some sort of new crisis building... On the line from Moscow, I'm joined by our Bureau Chief, Catherine Hiller, and here in the studios, our East Europe editor, Neil Buckley. Catherine, first of all, Ukraine, there's been a discernible, obvious rise in tensions over the last week, with real sabre-rattling coming out of Moscow. How likely is it, do you think, that we're going to see a resurgence in fighting? Well, Gideon, you've asked me the perennial big question, and as we've been in this situation before, and I can only guess, really, my sense is that there is no desire in Moscow for full-scale war or full open invasion of Ukraine. And I would assume that the accusations the government here and, and Vladimir Putin have raised against the Ukrainian government an attempt to put more pressure on Ukraine. And the point has been made before that this comes ahead of the G20 summit where also the French president will be there, German chancellor will be there, there would be an opportunity for Putin to discuss the crisis in eastern Ukraine and the plans for its settlement uh, with these two leaders. We know that Russia has been unhappy with the steps Ukraine has taken for a political settlement and I think Russia wants to raise the pressure on Ukraine to give more autonomy to the east and make that region more a satellite of Russia in what it, it had already hoped to achieve through the Minsk agreement in the first place. Neil, I mean, if you had to kind of summarise how you think Vladimir Putin views the situation now, is it something that he feels that he can still work to his advantage or is it kind of a running sore for Russia at the moment? I think the situation with Ukraine is that we've seen a lot of signs that Vladimir Putin is pretty desperate to get sanctions eased. The Russian economy is suffering. There just is no sign of, uh, of growth returning. And he's tried various ploys to try and get sanctions eased, including making a bit of a charm offensive in June when they had the annual St. Petersburg Economic Forum, the kind of showcase, which was attended by the European Commission President, Jean-Claude Juncker, and by the Italian Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi. And there was kind of a, an effort really to put on the charm. That didn't go anywhere. The problem for Putin is that he can't get sanctions lifted until Russia is deemed to have complied with the Minsk Agreement as Catherine was saying. But Russia can't really comply with the Minsk agreement until Ukraine has complied. And Ukraine has not delivered the autonomy for separatist regions in the east, or not autonomy, the degree of autonomy that it was supposed to provide to separatist regions in the east, because the Ukrainians cannot get that through their parliament. They need a two-thirds majority to do it, and the parliament just will not accept this. The Ukrainians say that you, uh, Russians have not taken various steps which were supposed to come before this and that they cannot deliver on this while there are still Russian forces 
in eastern Ukraine and Russia has not handed back control of the border. But those last two things were supposed to happen after Ukraine had moved. So we're in a kind of logjam. I think Putin is putting pressure on to try and break this logjam in some way. And how dangerous the situation is it? Because, of course, we've all learned to be perhaps appropriately nervous when you hear about Russian troop build-ups. There have been flare-ups in previous Augusts and the, the invasion of Georgia took place in August 2008. There is a track record of Putin being prepared to use violence if it meets his ends. I think it's very dangerous because I think, again, as Catherine was saying, we feel probably Putin doesn't want to go for an all-out invasion. That's not in his interest. It'd be very dangerous. It probably would mean more sanctions rather than less. So maybe the ploy is to dial up the violence, which they already seem to be doing in eastern Ukraine, and do it in a limited way. But that is risky. You can see things escalate out of control very quickly in those situations. Two years ago, eastern Ukraine really did get out of the Kremlin's control, which was why ultimately they were forced, and it looked as though that the Russian-backed forces may get defeated by the Ukrainians, which was why Russia had to respond by sending in significant forces two years ago in August 2014. And Katrin, as the world was watching this build-up of tensions in eastern Ukraine, we then get the news that one of Mr Putin's closest allies, Sergei Ivanov, is no longer going to be the chief of staff. What do you think was going on there? And is there any connection with the Ukraine stuff? Of course, that's one of the main questions, whether he was pushed out in the course of a discussion or even an argument in Putin's inner circle or in the political leadership over how to approach Ukraine. I can only tell you we don't know. The Kremlin has become so extremely intransparent in recent years that there's just no way of knowing. This has certainly been one of the conspiracy theories traded among Russian bloggers over the past week or so, that there were people around Mr. Putin discussing the Ukraine situation and that people more hawkish than Mr. Ivanov had prevailed. And that, of course, that kind of theory would have to make us very, very worried. But frankly, I'm not convinced by that because there is a much larger domestic political context to this replacement. You can just as well explain it as part of a large-scale gradual reshuffle and rejuvenation of the inner circle and also of the, the wider team around the president. And this change very much follows the pattern we've seen over most of the past year in the reshuffles. And therefore, I'm not convinced that Mr. Ivanov's replacement is the result of a leadership argument over Ukraine. And Neil, uh, just give us a sense of how important was Mr. Ivanov? Oh, he was extremely important. I mean, Mr. Putin, when he came to power in 1999-2000, gave interviews for kind of biography and was asked who are the people he most trusted. He named five people, one of whom, and I think possibly the first one he named was Sergei Ivanov. So they have been very close. They have had differences over things, but they have been very close. Both came from a KGB background. Sergei Ivanov was actually rather more successful than Vladimir Putin was in, in the KGB, but they knew each other there a similar age, similar world outlook. And Ivanov, of course, was one of the two potential candidates to succeed, in inverted commas, uh, Mr. Putin in 2008 as president. And Putin, in the end, went for Dmitry Medvedev. But uh, the, there was a while when Sergei Ivanov very much looked like the front runner to succeed Putin at that point, And had, it's still been talked about now as a possible uh, successor to Putin. Finally, Catherine, we're talking about the possibility of a resurgence in fighting in Ukraine. Obviously, Russia's already engaged in a pretty major military operation in Syria. 
The development this week that caught everybody's attention was a bombing raid from a base in Iran. Where do you see that particular military campaign? What stage is it at now? Do you think the Russians are preparing to wind down or are they committed now for the foreseeable future? At the moment, in recent weeks, clearly Russia has not been winding down. And one of the key reasons has been that the relative success of the rebels around Aleppo and the Russians certainly were not going to let government forces be pushed out just like that. Now, the problem is that certainly Moscow does not want the Syria military campaign to appear in the public view here back home as an ongoing war or even growing campaign, because so far they've successfully avoided the feeling uh, in the public here that there might be a risk of a repetition of the traumatic experience the Soviet Union had in Afghanistan. So earlier this year, uh, Mr. Putin announced that he had ordered the drawdown to commence. But since then, if we look at the frequency and the intensity of the Russian bombing, we have not actually seen that the campaign has significantly diminished. So they have been replacing some of the flights that they had been doing out of their Syrian airbase with a long-range bomber flights out of Russia. And so now they've redirected some of those to Iran, which saves time and money. And you were mentioning that this had happened uh, once by today. It's already been happening for the third time, the defense ministry said. But at the same time, the government here is also stressing that one should not make too much of this and not see this cooperation with Iran as something massive or a major new partnership. And foreign policy officials here also stress that the relationship between Iran and Russia is not like a massive friendship or long-term partnership without problems, but it's very much cooperative relationship when interests coincide. And there are also lots of times where that is not the case. Okay, and finally, then, Neil, I mean, it's very difficult to see where all these different developments fit together. That said, there is almost kind of a cult of Vladimir Putin, I think, in the West, in the sense that he's often portrayed as a kind of master chess player who knows what he's doing, who often outwits Western leaders. Do you get that feeling looking at these various fronts on which Putin is operating, that he's in a man in control, or does it look a bit uh, dodgier than that? I think he's very much in control uh, still at home. I mean, there's talk about factional infighting, particularly in the security services, as Catherine mentioned, but the impression is that he's still very much in control there. I think this idea of Putin as the grand strategist who is always outfoxing the West is wrong. I think that exaggerates the success he's had in recent years. You know, he's achieved some of his aims, but suffered significant setbacks as well. If you talk to most Russians who analyse the Kremlin and Putin and who know him, they say he's not a grand strategist, he's a very good tactician. And he tends to take, you know, he's very opportunistic. He takes decisions as they come and on a case-by-case basis. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, there are things happening in Ukraine. There are things happening domestically. There's the things happening in Syria. They're all coinciding, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all linked in some way or that, that Putin is getting the upper hand in some way of the West and the international community. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed to Neil Buckley here in the studio. Thanks also to Catherine Hiller in Moscow. That's it for this week. Until next week. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.